This is episode 123 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Welcome to episode 123 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, I have Hussein Kudrati on the show. Hussein is a real estate lawyer and a real estate investor and one of the more interesting guys I have the pleasure of knowing. He's got a really deep story. He's done a lot of things in his lifetime. Today, we just focused on the real estate law side of things, as well as his industrial investing. So Hussein buys up industrial space that uh, he leases out to various different businesses. He gets something called triple net leases, which basically means he's just generating straight rental revenue and not really paying any of the expenses. So we talk a little bit about that in this episode and how he even got to thinking about investing in this type of thing so that we can hopefully glean a few gold nuggets that we can take and use in our own real estate investing business. Before we get to that, I have a little bit of housekeeping. I want you to mark off June 15th at 7 p.m. for a live episode with Kayla Andrade. She's going to be talking about the landlord-tenant board situation in Ontario with the current lockdown and the current restrictions. She is the founder of Ontario Landlords Watch, and she's going to be giving us all kinds of tips and tricks about leasing and tenant screening and uh, assessing their credit bureaus, various different tools that are going to be very useful for real estate investors. So I'm going to make this sign-up available through my bio on Instagram, my link tree, as well as on my website. You can just go to www.andrew-hines.com forward slash KA live. So KA for Kayla Android live. And uh, that will be available from my main website page as well. I definitely think you're going to enjoy that and you will have the opportunity to ask her questions live after her presentation. So make sure that you get registered so that you don't miss out on that one. As always, if you're new to the podcast, please take a moment, rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you're watching on YouTube, uh, click the like, subscribe and notification bell if you have not already done so just to help more people find this and leave me a comment. Let, let me know what you think. I'd really appreciate it. Without further ado, here is episode 123 with Hussein Kudrati. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have Hussein Kudrati on the show and uh, really happy to have you here. Hussein, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So uh, just to start off, Hussein, um, we met on the golf course. Um, Irwin connected us. I know uh, you're a, a very keen and savvy real estate lawyer. You're a real estate investor, a pilot, and uh, probably a million other things. But uh, why don't you just tell us about yourself and uh, what you do in real estate? For sure. So my official title is that I'm a lawyer who practices on a solicitor basis, whereby I offer real estate, corporate commercial, and estate planning services. In my interests, I'm an avid fisherman, golfer, travel enthusiast, and pretty much pursuer of adventure wherever I can find it. Life's too short, so I look to enjoy it with good people, doing fun things as much as I possibly can. I like that. So how does how does being a lawyer uh, fit in with that adventure side of things? Because lawyers all you know straight business. When I think of lawyer, I think straight straight to the business. Um, Straight so that's why I became a lawyer, right? Because a lot of people view lawyers as stuffed shirts. And I'm not sure if your viewers can even see, like, I'm in a polo today. And it's not like it's casual. Like, this is the yeah. way my firm operates. We're much more, we operate on a casual basis. We operate in a way that people should feel comfortable walking in. Because I, I recall, like, even as a kid going to visit, like, you know, lawyers with parents or whatever for doing deals. And these should have been positive experiences. It's not like I ever had to go into court or anything, but it was still an intimidating, unfriendly mm-hmm. experience with the wood paneling and all of that. Right. I mean, I guess it looks good, but it's intimidating for people who are not from that world. So part of what motivated me to become a lawyer is to do it with a difference, right? And then do it not just where I'm caring about the billables, but actually what is the product I'm delivering, right? Yeah. Because I found that not just in law, but in anything you do, if you do it with a passion and you do it with a commitment to delivering the best, you can be at that. Generally, more often than not, money follows because people will recognize that people will gravitate towards utilizing your services for that purpose. And that's kind of been my approach of why I try and do it is I focus on the on the quality of product I'm doing and, and trust that the money will follow, you know, yeah. and that's been good for me so far. Touch wood. I just, as you know, I just started my own law firm five months ago. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. I know you, you told me you were in the process of, of moving. So, uh, yeah. so tell me about it. 
So it's been five months we've been open and pandemic has had its challenges. I mean, we were in a temporary space for the first month because of permit delays and everything else with the municipality relating to COVID and people working from home. But we've kept a positive attitude and worked the best we possibly can. And it's been good. We've been blessed. We've grown. And our team continues to grow as well. We've hired one other clerk, and we're looking to potentially bring in an articling student in the summer. Okay. So are you, you know, on like the average real estate transaction, are you the guy that's, that's doing everything or do you have a lot of the, you know, the heavy lifting done by your help, uh, you know, your team, and then you're the, the, you know, the guy signing with the client and, and looking things over. So my philosophy is I should always be available to my clients, but to be able to offer cost-effective budgeting, especially for residential real estate transactions, a lot of the heavy lifting is done by my clerks. Any lawyer, any residential yeah. lawyer who tells you otherwise is simply being disingenuous. It's pretty standard it, stuff, yeah. Because you end up, if you just look at it from a dollars and cents perspective and efficiency perspective, I would much rather be there to deal with my clients where they actually need legal advice right. and not be the guy on the phone, you know, contacting the bank saying, where's the money or where's yeah. the tax certificate or any of those, you know, detailed minutiae that is important that, yeah. Law clerks are trained and designed to do. And I've I've worked with a lot of lawyers over the years. And I will say that, you know, the ones that don't hire help, you know, because they don't have time to give you advice. They don't have time to talk to you. Like they're just constantly trying to close deals and, and they could be good at it, right? They're going to be better at it than their clerks a lot of the time, mm-hmm. but it comes at a cost. And I agree with you. Like I want, I want a lawyer that can that can look from a high level and keep and steer me away from trouble. Like, you know, focus on, on, on keeping me in the right direction and, and only get involved in the actual transaction where needed. Um, yeah, you know, and that's usually where it's complicated, right? Where there's something unique or there's, you know, yeah. this title is in two parcels and we don't, you know, we don't normally see that or something like that. Um, just stuff that's unique is, is in my experience where the lawyer would typically get involved. For sure. And the thing is with me, my clients will always know they can reach me because like, especially if you're a repeat client with my firm, you will have direct access to my cell phone. You don't even mm-hmm. need to call the office, right? So you text or call me and yeah. pretty much at all hours, I'm generally, cause I'm a bit of a night owl. I'm, I'm available. Yeah. I like that. No, I mean, I have uh, the lawyer I've been working with for, for the last you know 10 years. Uh, I have his cell phone, but I don't ever want to text it. I'm just like, I don't want to bug you unless you're like, you know, you know, your business hours. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I could see with you. Yeah. You're on the golf course, probably with a lot of your clients. Like it's, it's a, it's a different relationship, you know, and you're an investor yourself, right? So you're working with people that, you know, they're speaking your language. You, You guys are doing the same things. Right. Because honestly, if you want to be good at it, you cannot just be doing it from a theoretical perspective, right? Mm -hmm. It's part of the advice and why I think clients like working with me is I'm investing myself. My dollars are in the Mm -hmm. market just like theirs are. So when I'm giving advice, it's not just the legal advice. It's also like, hey, does this make sense? Or hey, did you see this opportunity? Mm Because often like, because I'm always looking as well myself, right? And if it's not quite right for me, still might be right for someone else and vice versa. So some of the best deals I've got have been referred to me by friends or clients and vice versa. If something comes across the table or if, even if I just know one client's looking to sell, I know one client's looking to buy, I can, I can bring them together. And that's the best situation to be in, right? Is when you can yeah. make deals happen. So, so you're connecting a lot of people is what you're saying. I, I wouldn't say it's a lot, but whenever I can, yeah. I try and do it because that's my, that's yeah. my role, right? A good lawyer's role is to connect things together. Yeah. Well, you're definitely, you know, just, just from our interactions, like I, I know that, you know, you know, your stuff or you're very good with investors and the fact that we've been able to talk real estate, like I'd be more inclined to want to deal with you because you get it. So yeah, I can definitely say that. Um, the lawyer I've been working with, um, he does have some investments as well. So, and I've always liked that, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the, those investments. Um, but I certainly, I, I rarely see a lawyer that's, that's in, investing aggressively like you are. I, I, I haven't seen that much. So um, that's pretty awesome. And we're, we're going to talk about that. But I just think, I don't think I've ever had a lawyer on this show. So, <laughs> so here's my opportunity um, for the investors that, that might be a little bit newer or don't, you know, don't yet have a lawyer. I mean, it's not always going to be practical for you to be the guy. What do you recommend people look for if they're trying to find a lawyer that can help them in their investing path? The first thing they should look for when they meet with a lawyer is a lawyer who's willing to talk to them and just get to know them right? If you're reaching out to a lawyer and the lawyer simply says, yes, send me the agreement and that's about it. And then they just push out the paper, get you to sign and that's done. That's Mm -hmm. usually not a 
the right lawyer, at least not the way I would want to approach it. My approach is get to know you. What's your situation? You know, are you married? Do you have kids? Why are you buying this property? What are you hoping to accomplish? Because if a lawyer has a bigger, deeper understanding of you as a person and what your goals are, then they can actually sit and say, okay, you know what? Hey, have you thought about this? Have you considered this? Because then you even think about it. Like, for example, like if it's a second, third, fourth investment property, then you start talking about structuring, right? Now, it's so many clients who ended up with like two or three investment properties bought in their personal name simply because no one took the time to see, okay, what are your goals? What are your objectives? How long do you plan to hold this property? Is it just a flip for a quick return? Is it, or is it a long-term or do you intend to eventually like wait for like a zoning change so that you can develop it down the line? So always thinking about, you know, what is the long-term goal here? Because if you can structure deals right from the beginning, you save yourself so much money and time and aggravation, right? Because, and that's where I find a lot of frustration comes in and why people don't like lawyers is people say that lawyers just care about their fee and get out. Whereas they don't have to spend the time to actually give you advice because they're supposed to have that knowledge to say, hey, but what about doing it this way, right? Like, oh, or hey, you got so much excess income, why don't you put this into family trust and use that as a vehicle, right? But then also yeah. giving you the drawbacks, like financing challenges when you use trust, yeah. things like that. So painting the whole pictures, because also it's not a boilerplate response. It's one size does not fit all, even in residential real estate. If you're actually taking the time to do it to the best of your ability, there will be nuances between each client. Yeah, absolutely. And and you you pointed out some things that are very critical and I want to I want to emphasize this. Most lawyers uh in real estate, they might have an investment property, but I mean most of them probably are not real estate investors. So they don't know to think about, okay, well what about financing property 5? If they've never owned five properties, they they won't know about that. And I think what you're getting at is, yeah, there there are some certainly some financing challenges if you do everything in your personal name. Eventually, you might find yourself in a position where you can't even buy your own home because the bank won't qualify you. You can't you can't meet their ratio requirements. Um, whereas if you do it in a company, you can you can have some separation there. Um, there's a lot of different things you can do. And you would only really know that if you were in this field, if you were doing this, if you were in, you were an investor, you were connected with investors. Absolutely. And, uh, that's, that's so rare though. I mean, is that, is, is that a needle in a haystack? Cause I, like I said, I don't, I don't see a ton of real, uh, ton of the real estate lawyers with any significant rental properties. Do you see that in your circles? You see guys that have some rental properties? I think there are, I think there are a few out there, but a lot of mm-hmm. lawyers by their nature, a lot of them are very conservative yeah. and don't want to take risks. A lot of them have it in their mutual funds or the TFSA right. or things like that. Or they, or some of them do a lot of private lending. That is more their space that they prefer to go into. But instead of direct, you know, like, hey, let me look at development opportunities. Let me look at land banking. Let me consider, you know, do I want to buy in Alberta, for example, right? Like, in fact, like I've got a couple of different clients who've come to me recently showing me like, hey, they've got these townhouses in Alberta, right? Because you can still buy a Calgary townhouse for about $300,000, $350,000, right? Yeah. When if you think about like in the area that we, at least in the Halton Hamilton area, a townhouse for 350 seems like absurd almost to even mention that number. Right? Yeah. You're almost looking at double that amount at least that's starting in like Halton. It's gotten crazy, yeah. So, you know, and then you look at the cash flow and the returns they're getting. You know, but then again, you have to also be cautious, like advising them about the risks and the things associated with getting a property in Alberta, right? Because there's different insurance requirements and things like that that weirdly enough, I'd actually spent some time in Fort McMurray and saw a few friends of mine got burned. So I made, so I had that little bit of knowledge in the back of my head that actually advised them that ended up being quite useful. Okay. But yeah, I don't know if too many people do it. I'm sure they're out there, but at the end of the day, it's all about the mindset, right? Yeah. If you're an entrepreneur, particularly, you want to work with people with entrepreneurial mindset because they're going to understand you and relate to you better. And you might get some ideas too. They give you ideas yeah. and, and that, that propels you forward. I, I wouldn't say I've got that on, on for, you know, from my real estate lawyer, but I've put that together through my team as a whole. And um, there's, such a, there's such a synthesis of demands and needs when you're buying property. Like there's the, there's, you know, setting up a corporation adds a layer of protection, maybe from liability. Although uh, you might say that that's not a big significant one because people can always sue the the principals. They can always sue the the president of the company if if that's, you know, that's you, the owner. So 
I, I would never have done it for that reason because I have insurance for that reason anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, I definitely like tax treatment in certain circumstances. Um, mm-hmm. And I like the ability to grow big from a financing standpoint. I know the banks like it when it's in a company. So mm-hmm. So that was a part of the reason I set up a company because I had the intention to grow. And I, you mentioned that earlier. If you want to grow, you got to be aware that eventually the banks are going to say no unless you're going commercially. And then if you go commercially with the bank, they're going to want to see a company. That's the, that's the way they're going to be most comfortable. And so, even if you don't qualify initially, yeah. because some people will not qualify with a new corporation with mm-hmm. no credit history or anything. Yeah. Consider trust agreements. You know, I mean, yeah. it's a little bit of a tricky area and banks may not like it. Yeah. But it's, there's nothing illegal with doing it that way. No. It's completely valid. CRA recognizes it. And yeah. then the beauty is if you've got the trust agreement properly set up from the get-go, at the time when you grow and you can move one, two, three properties into the into the corporation, because now your corporation can get its yeah. own financing on those properties, you can avoid paying land transfer tax instead of having to like sell it to the corporation because yeah. then you have to trigger land transfer tax or go into much gray areas that could run you into trouble if you try and get out of it at that point. Yeah, great, great point you made there. So if so, it's a bare trust agreement, right? That's what Correct. they call it. Yeah, yeah. So so basically, I could buy a property in my personal name, you know, to get the bank qualifying, and then I could have the trust agreement when I buy it, saying that the company actually owns it, and I'm holding it in trust for the company. And by doing that, now I can get the tax treatment of the company if I like that. And exactly. then later on, I could sell it to the company and uh, and not have the issue of land transfer. So that's a big one because land transfer, if you've got a million dollar property, that's a big land transfer tax bill. Yeah. And also just think about the appreciation anyway, right? That could yeah. happen. It might not be a million dollar property now, but yeah. think about what, five, six hundred thousand dollar properties just three, four years ago are going yeah. for today. Well, I was just talking to my lawyer and my accountant about about moving one of my properties into my corp. And after I heard all the costs, um, I just decided, no, I'm just going to leave it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want to pay that. Um, so there, there's a lot to consider there. And and a lot of this is unpacked on my show. Like I do get into these topics and, mm-hmm. and uh, people can pick it up. But yeah, if you're just getting started, of course, it's nice if you have a lawyer that, that understands this stuff and can give you some advice on that. I'd say the same about accountants because it really is a conversation that needs to happen between your accountant and your lawyer and you, and you, and hopefully they're both investors and they get what you're trying to do and they'll help you grow. Um, question for you. Can you give me a couple of common mistakes you see real estate investor clients making from a legal perspective? So one of the mistakes, uh, common mistakes is how they're going to take title, right? Like how, especially like when I see JV, JVs and things being put together, mm-hmm. who's going on title and how it's going to work. I see that as a very common mistake that is being made like because they don't do it wrong. Understand. They do it wrong because some of them don't understand the risks of not being on title. Mm-hmm. And whether the agreement gives them sufficient protection. And particularly it becomes relevant is if you ever want to exit the JV. People always are very gung-ho and very excited about joining a JV because they can get into the ladder. And some of these people can't afford to buy on their own or they want to spread it. So, you know, they can buy three instead of getting just one on their own. But the problem becomes is if you don't have your exit strategies mapped out, eventually having to resort to getting court orders to force sales of properties and things is problematic. Mm-hmm. The second is that before they enter into the agreement of purchase and sale, especially if they want to do assignments, they don't really put in a sufficient assignment clause. And then they sometimes get stuck holding the bag where they have to close the deal. Especially people, a lot of people now think they can get into this business of wholesaling property. Mm-hmm. But when you're wholesaling a property, more often than not, very few, some do, but very few intend to close. They intend to find a a subsequent right. buyer and go ahead and sell it. So two sides, they see problems. See it on the wholesaler side where they don't have the right assignment clause. And if the mm-hmm. seller notices and decides to be difficult, they can cause problems on that end. And on the assignee side, they don't actually review the underlying agreement to see what has been what has transpired. And often they have they agree to this clause that the seller cannot be made aware of. So they cannot verify even what really the assignor may have told what the expectation of the seller often is. And then you end up with like a three-way pissing circle to see, you know, who's going to fall on the day of closing. And that can often lead to bad taste in their mouth, right? And that's why like often like now when I deal with assignments, I have a form letter that I do that I essentially send out to, depending on which side I'm on, just laying out the potential risks and permutations and get them to sign off and acknowledge that I've advised them. Because otherwise, 
on the last day, it's like, oh, why did you tell me this? Why didn't you tell me that? So now I just put out all these scenarios. It's taken me a while, yeah. but now I just give it out to them. I'm like, here you go. Here's your letter. So, I mean, I didn't, I didn't catch or quite grasp all of that, but I know you're deep into this. Would you like, what's the, what's the way around this to simplify it? If there was an easy way, like when it comes to assignments, should someone like be talking to their lawyer first saying, this is what I want to do. Can you give me a purchase and sale agreement that will work for that? So with the right clause. So so I know some realtors don't, don't like this, but my honest opinion is that if you're going into real estate transaction, you're going to be using your lawyer anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So most lawyers will have a quick look and give you some feedback without charging you a fee to just give you some insight into the agreement. So especially when you're dealing with assignment or something with nuance. So if you know, like, for example, like if the garage is across the street from the property, like some Toronto properties are, and there's like the laneway going through it, like, what are your rights? Do you have, is it properly documented? Do you actually have legal access to get to your garage, so to speak? So it's all about like spend, spend the time to just tell your realtor, Hey, I just want this agreement to go. I want to run this by my lawyer. And then, that will save you a lot of grief because mm-hmm. once you have a firm deal, there's no leverage to really change it, right? Yeah. And I get with the market being as hot as it is, if you try and put that condition in, it can be a killer. So right. sometimes just before you, so like a couple of my good clients, what they do is if they want to put in an offer, they at least send it to me to do my title search, right? And try and yeah. do a bit of DD for them just to yeah. see, like, hey, is there anything I should know about going into this so I'm not dealing with this after the right. fact? And I've done that exact same thing. I'm, you know, going to write a firm offer. Hey, can you look at this really quickly for me? Because I don't want to be on the hook for something if there's going to be a problem. You know, yeah, can, you, it, can you run a title search on this before I put a firm offer on it? Yeah. And the like biggest that. one that I like to do is I, I like some, some lawyers will just do like a parcel register search. Mm-hmm. I like to do an abutting land search because often like your property may not show what the issue is. But if you do search on the budding property, you might see the, the reference mm-hmm. to your property and something on their title. So you want to make sure that you're cross-referencing because sometimes yeah. mistakes happen more often than you would appreciate. So it's about trying to make sure that that's fine. Okay. okay. Do you prefer people use your purchase and sale agreement or do you have your own or do you just use Aurea? Do you have the, the uh, license for the, that? Aurea form is fine. It's just about the okay. clauses you use yeah. on different things that I see. Like if there's like an encroachment about how to do an encroachment, I have like standard clauses okay. that I offer up and I, and I share with like realtors. Like, I mean, I have a few realtors who, who enjoy working with me because I have no problem sharing the knowledge because honestly, less grief, if deals are simpler, it's better yeah. for everybody. Yeah. You might as well share it with them. Hey, if you got this type of deal, use this clause so that we don't have a problem. Um, exactly. yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, again, because you're in this industry, you do this, um, mm-hmm. regarding joint venture agreements. I mean, from, uh, from my perspective, like say if I were to joint venture, and I was the money guy. Well, say I was the guy that wasn't the money guy and I didn't want to guarantee the loan, I wouldn't be able to be on title um, if I didn't want to be involved in that, right? So I'd have to be the guy that didn't own the property that's getting a 50% share for doing all the work. Mm-hmm. So I'm in a compromised position because I don't ha- I'm not, my name's not in title. Correct. Now, is there really a way around that though, in your eyes? So, so one of the clauses that I like to see in a JV is the option to be put on title and it's an irrevocable right. So if any time you decide you want to go on title, as long as you can get the lender to agree to adding you on title. And, and the truth is when a bank's going to say no to having a second person secure the mortgage, banks are not going to really have an issue with that. Right. I mean, they might pretend like they're going to make a big fuss, but from experience, having gone through it, they almost never do. Right. They might just make you go. As long as you're upstanding people, right? If, if, if the guy going on title has like negative net worth and, and, uh, you know, $5,000 a month of expenses and no income, then they might, you know, say, well, the deal will no longer qualifies, but otherwise, yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. If you're working with a good, credible person, yeah, you should have no issue. But that goes back to the due diligence of before you even enter into JV, right? And that's like one of the first things, what should I look for? When to ask me, it's like, I'm like, did you do DD on the guy you're, or Al you're going into business with? Right. You know, because the reality is the community is very small that we yeah. we exist in, right? So if you just ask a few people, chances are someone's done a deal with them. Someone's used them as yeah. a lawyer, an accountant, a realtor. Yep. So you'll get a sense of, you know, is this someone you want to do business with? 
And that's what I do now. I mean, I learned my lesson the hard way, but I mean, even the stuff I've been doing in Florida, I was just there for three months. Um, I got heavy into the community and anyone I was going to deal with was going to be in that community because mm-hmm. I want whoever I work with to have something to lose if they do anything that's not above board. Like, because yeah, everyone else is going to hear about it, you know? So yeah. I, I want to know what does that person have to lose if they, if they try and screw me, um, yeah. you got to know that. And you got to, you have to understand that's a very real possibility. And I think a lot of people, when they get started, it's all roses and rainbows and sunshine. They don't think that these bad things can happen, but no, there are people with dollar signs in their eyes waiting to take advantage of others. Um, and if you do a little due diligence, you'll find those people, you'll find out who they are. So definitely. Yeah, I agree with you. Community is so small. Like you hear if people are doing stuff that that isn't right, you you will hear about it if you ask around. Absolutely. And, and, and then from there, you put in clauses that make sure that you maintain certain leverage, right? So going back to like about the clause about, you know, either you getting put on the mortgage or if you don't want to be put on the mortgage that you can trigger a sale, right? That you have the irrevocable right to list the property for sale, right? They have to, they essentially giving you that power of attorney. So even if they're entitled, you still have the right to basically sign all the documents, do the offers and things if they don't cooperate. So it's about keeping the leverage, especially if you're the, if you're bringing in like a lot of the closing costs and they're just going on title to help qualify for a mortgage, if that's the relationship, you have a lot of control to make this happen, right? And sometimes people do not realize their own negotiating power, right? And especially yeah. when they're new to this, they're so excited that they don't think like, okay, what can I, and maybe they just don't know what they can ask for, right? Yeah. That's the other thing is, so, and that's where it comes down to who's advising you, who's guiding you in this. Mm-hmm. And the worst is I see these standard JV agreements brought in, right? And half the time it doesn't even reference the right property or mm-hmm. anything. And it's just like, well, what was the deal? Like you've just put this agreement, but have you even considered like, and I always encourage people try and read through it. I don't expect you to understand it the way a lawyer would, but at least go through it, highlight the questions so that when you meet with the lawyer, mm-hmm. it's a more productive call. And especially if you can narrow it down to specific things you want to clarify, or then you can just say, well, what else should I be asking? Yeah. Always. In fact, that's a solid tip that I give to whenever I try and have a conversation with prospective investors is ask your your accountant, your lawyer, if you have a coach, your coach, what should I be asking? What am I missing? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people go into it where they think they're experts, right? Because they listen to, I mean, like podcasts like this. This is very informative. It gives you information, right? But it's not going to make you an expert in this field. Like It's not going to make you like, like you and I who actually do a lot more behind the scenes to get mm-hmm. to this point, right? We got to take action, right? Like experience exactly. is what, what will make you an expert. Exactly. So always ask, what do I not know? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Now, do you have the most common structure, I think, is you've got a money partner who guarantees the loan and then you've got the working partner. So mm-hmm. that type of scenario, um, do you have a, you must have a template you work off of for that if somebody I, comes to you? Absolutely, I, I do. And one one tip I, I, I want to share just with the listeners is when you have a working partner and a money partner, do not give up control unless you know them very well and you have a complete trust relationship. But if you're starting out, set up a separate bank account that checks above a certain amount, even in the aggregate. So to stop them making just small checks to go up, mm-hmm. require your signature. Because yeah. I've run into this issue repeatedly where clients have just trusted the working partner, cut a check and said, oh, you'll do the construction and the renovations and whatever else. And the working partner is gone. The money's gone. Now yeah, yeah. you can sue them, but if these people don't have anything or you mm-hmm. did it with a corp, your recourse is going to be so limited. Keep yeah. control of the cash and put it in a bank account. And ideally, when you're just starting out, do a separate bank account for a venture. Yeah. That small monthly fee you have to pay is going to be worth it in the security and peace of mind you can have at night. Great point. And I also want to add to that. Don't take risks you don't need to take. If you can if you can send the money directly to the lawyer for closing, send it direct. Don't put it in the account first because anytime you give your partner an opportunity to take cash out of the account, you know, you are taking a risk. Now, this is why I still go back though to work with people that you know have something to lose if they do anything that's not above board because uh otherwise people can find creative ways to uh how do I put this politely? Screw you. Uh, like they can. And Absolutely. so you do, you, you do like, of course, work with a good lawyer, make sure your agreement's good, but work with people that you genuinely feel like you should, you should trust 
And uh, it doesn't mean you trust them, but that means you you are open to trusting them one day and uh, you work towards trust. I think that that's, that's the, uh, the big thing. Well, one of the big things I've learned because I've definitely, uh, definitely had some hiccups in the, uh, in the attempts at joint ventures. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in real estate investing? So right now, actually, a couple of things. Um, I'm looking at, I'm looking for a cottage property that's going to be something I can keep for a long, long-term hold. Like I don't, I want to keep it as a personal cottage property. I've had cottage properties in the past. Currently, I don't own one, and it's just something that I feel as like is a missing part in my portfolio. It's a challenge because with the pandemic, waterfront properties just went crazy in price. But I'm still looking and I think there's opportunity there. Plus, I just think waterfront property, especially in some rural parts of Ontario, still have tremendous growth potential, especially as the work for home culture goes up. And then when you think about things like Starlink and just connectivity is getting better and better in some of these rural areas, where if you can work full time from home, it's so desirable. And for me, like, especially some of the changes in my own profession that came in with the pandemic, if I'm able to do that and work three, four days, you know, from the cottage, that would be amazing for me to do. Because like I said, one of my two passions, golf and fishing and cottage country is fantastic for that. The other thing I'm still looking to do is to find land banking opportunities, ideally properties in the green belt where I see potential that it might expand there. If I can, and buying, I'm talking about like buying minimum one acre lots and bigger, because if you can get those and you are able to sit on them and have the capital to do so, there's going to be tremendous opportunity because there's growth potential. And yeah. the reality is in Canada, people want to be around the GTA area. There's already so much pressure on the urban boundary and the green belt mm-hmm. that if you can get access, especially if it's already being farmed, like farmed green belt, so it's already kind of cash flowing you back. You don't mm-hmm. need to make a profit on it. Just if it's covering your costs of yearly maintenance, even yeah. then it's a fantastic opportunity. And we've already identified a few opportunities and I've, I've even brought some to my clients and, you know, and the potential is, is if the green belt expands in the next five, 10, 15 years, you can five, 10 X on those, on those. Oh, yeah. Plots. yeah. And you pointed out something, you know, specifically important, especially to me is that you can still make cash flow while you wait. If you're, if, if it's just costing you money, eventually you might get annoyed and want to sell it, or it might keep you up at night. So finding a way to cash flow while you, while you hold it is a, is a great idea. Yeah. Um, what's your portfolio look like right now? My portfolio is heavily on industrial. We have a lot of warehousing and then we have quite a bit of student rentals simply from when I was at university and living in this area, we identified opportunities around Mac mm-hmm. and some colleges in London and so on and so forth. So that's, there's a lot of that there, but then we used to have some office space, which we got rid of pre pandemic, which is a lucky break. And, and at that point we transitioned and redeployed capital from the office space into industrial warehousing and, Pretend and create a couple of them actually bonded warehouses, which are a little bit more lucrative as well, and triple net leases. So essentially, we don't need to worry about them at all now. So explain to me uh, the industrial warehousing. Like, what, what are you what are you buying? How does it work? What kind of what kind of so numbers? Essentially, essentially it, it, it's like a go down, right? Like it's basically a steel structure or a, a building anywhere from ten thousand square feet to seventy five thousand square feet. Okay, and you have lumber stored. You have basically all these suppliers who basically need a place to store, especially when demand was slowing down and they, you know, they didn't have places to store it. It was a wonderful opportunity. And as things come into Canada, and we have some that are even designated for storing hazardous substances and things like that. Are so, these in Hamilton or like all around? Uh, Mississauga, Etobicoke, like around the Mimico yeah. area. And okay. and couple in Hamilton and then in London yeah. as well. So we've gone around where the core rail nodes are because that's where it's mm-hmm. been quite lucrative because then you can transfer them or okay. where the airports are, one or so the other. How did you find your client base for, for storage? Like, do, are you renting out uh, sections of warehouse? Like, do you get 5,000 square feet or like how so, do you do so, that? So some are taken up entirely by a single One tenant. client, okay. So, and, and then some are spread out between like three, four, five, Tenants and honestly, we have commercial uh, uh, leasing agents that we just outsource this to. Okay, and, so you, yeah. how the heck did you know about this? Like that—that's pretty unique. I mean, compared to what I hear from most investors. So, 
it actually came to me because so we've actually done this like and and my family's been doing this for a long long time in other countries and we just saw this as an opportunity to do it in Canada and at that time like honestly people weren't that interested in now more people are desperate to get into this good warehousing space right because every business especially with e-commerce they all need a place to store inventory as they're scaling Mm -hmm. up right and if you can give them a secure safe space that's accessible and has like the proper loading duct and infrastructure built in, which isn't that expensive. It's fantastic to do. I really like storage because the the landlord tenant board doesn't apply. And, uh, and and yeah, you can, you can just, you know, write the terms. It's a business deal. And especially with, with units shrinking in space. And I know this isn't, this isn't, uh, you know, industrial, but with units shrinking in space, there's a huge amount of demand that's going to be created for storage going forward. And in industrial, there's far more square footage that you can make usable than almost anything else. Right. So essentially like it's incredible how much more you can get out of one of those units. Give me an example of, of, um, what you, what what a person could buy like a potential deal that you've done if you're if you're willing to share kind of like rough back of the envelope numbers or... so i mean this is not going back a couple of years but we sure. bought like about a 10,000 square foot facility that was in fairly rough mm-hmm. shape picked it up for about just under a mill okay and put another 200 300,000 into it and now within by in 2 years time we will have paid for it in full, with what the income is, well, with what the with what the income generated. Okay. So four years, four and a half years, it will have paid for itself. Okay, so let's go back to when you bought it. So you bought it for one million. We'll say for a round number, renovated for for three hundred thousand. So you're in for one point three million. Yeah. What was it worth at that point? Did you go back and refinance it, or you just you just left no, it alone? So, so we actually we actually just did like with a couple of partners. We just did it as a cash deal. All cash. Okay. All, all cash and every and within four years we're all able to cash out and now we just have a lucrative property that has appreciated in value. Like yeah. today, like we had unsolicited offer yeah. in March now, it's two months ago or so. And that was for double what we paid for it. So what's the what's the monthly uh, income on this? So the monthly income currently we're earning from our tenant on that property, I would have to, I'd have to run the numbers. I'll just, just get back to you. You can ball, share ballpark. Yeah. Just, just ballpark back of the envelope. Do you know, like, uh, are we like 10,000 a month? Are we 20,000, 30,000 a month? So, so, so the way we're working is they're actually paying on an annualized basis. So okay. they, they cover all operating costs and then they so you pay no it. operating costs, no taxes, no nothing, not even structures. It's a not insurance at least everything. Well, we paid, but it's charged back. Okay, so you have zero expenses. So, are are you making uh, like one hundred fifty thousand a year? Is that like your annual lease or something like that? No, no, more. No, it's like two hundred fifty or something. More, <laughs> five hundred thousand. It, it's somewhere in the some. It comes to between somewhere between three hundred and four hundred thousand. Yeah, so let's just say it was three hundred fifty thousand a year. So let's what's that work out? So three fifty divided by twelve. So you're about 30,000 a month, say on that. Yeah. So with zero expenses, so that's a, that works out pretty nice. Let's see where that leaves us. So that leaves you at a cap rate of on a $1.3 million purchase, 26%. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah. But that's obviously increased over time, right? You weren't making 30,000 a month right off the bat, right? No. No, so that's the most recent. Would you have started closer to like ten thousand a month and then increased it? It was slightly under. It was actually eight, about eight and a bit. Okay, so so you scaled that up. Now, are these annual leases? Like it's a one year contract, and then you can renegotiate to whatever you want. As, we, do, we do it as two years, and then we okay. renegotiate. Do you have built in increases in your two year contract? No, because we have so much demand. So we've got like we've got clients who are like, hey, yeah. we want we want this space. So yeah. if the current person doesn't want to agree to our terms, you just like, check them out. It's not a big deal exactly to get. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> this is a, when you get the landlord tenant board out of things, so you can, you can write your own terms and whatever you agree with or agree on, that's the deal. Yeah. And it's all, it's all about having strategic location though. Yeah. It's all about locate. Like they say real estate is location, location, location. Industrial space is even more yeah. location, location. Like I had one, I had one client who had a beautiful space mm-hmm. and I told him not to sell it, not to sell it, not to sell it. He ended mm-hmm. up selling it for 600,000 about three and a bit years ago now. Okay. 
he regrets it so much. He just sent me the listing that same place sold for just under 3 million yeah. in, in February of this year. Okay. Wow. And, like, and he was so like... frustrated because he barely broke even on what he bought it for. Mm-hmm. And he had held it for close to five years. So what do you think about like buying properties, like commercial space with a potential like environmental concern? Like it's got a phase one environmental study that says you need to investigate further. Is that something you'd consider in the industrial side of things? Like, can you still use it if there's a contaminant? Well, again, the, the reality is, is it, how, what is the contamination, right? It, yeah. it depends on your, on what it is. Yeah. If they had like bait stored chemicals and it seeped through the concrete and they wanted you to, to investigate further or something like that. Two is what, what tolerances your tenant have, right? If they prefer yeah. only using it as just storage with no real employees there or anything, yeah. do they really care? Some they of them probably do, don't, some right? of them don't. And yeah. three, are you going to require financing to purchase? That's the problem, okay. right? Yeah. The financier is the one that's going to have an like, issue. Sometimes like, honestly, I find the banks don't make a lot of, don't have a lot of sense. Like I've seen commercial uh, you, you, condo units and the bank's like, yeah, we need environmental phase one. And I'm like, you just finance the one next door. What do you think is going to be that different? Right. But they just don't really think it through. So if you run into those issues, then you have a problem. Right. Yeah. But if you've got the cash to do it and you're like, you know what? I can get this to cash flow so quickly. Why do I not want yeah. to get the cash to deploy? Then you can make it work, right? So it all depends on what stage of the game yeah. you're at and what you can afford to do. Yeah. And, and just to recap, for those who aren't familiar with this, um, environmental studies are often required by municipalities. If you want to change use, if you want to change something from commercial to residential, they'll actually require you to prove that it's clean so that it's safe for, for people. Banks want to see it. Uh, so it can really affect the value of an asset. But the reason I asked that question is I actually know a guy that bought something that was contaminated because he saw an opportunity. Um, I was just curious if you would do the same. Like if you knew you were coming in all cash and you knew it was going to make enough money, you might just buy something you knew was contaminated and, and cash flow all the way. And then just know one day you'll sell it and somebody else can do the same yeah exactly and and maybe even just cash for it to point where i make enough money that it it makes yeah. it worth it to clean it up at some point or even develop yeah. it right but some of these warehouses eventually might even be developed into something else right yeah and then you're just trying to do a conversion conversion use potentially right good good example of that is uh the old mr christie's factory over in uh where is that uh park lawn in in toronto yeah, yeah I, have, they, I have a client actually who just bought one in Mimico that he's going to use as a warehouse right now. And then and develop it? And then they tend to that he's going to turn it into like mixed yeah. use with like the rustic industrial condo look, residential yeah. on the top, and then uh, commercial yeah. on the res- commercial like restaurants, wine bars, that sort of thing at the bottom. So this, this kind of conversation is how you take your game from uh, the minor leagues to the major leagues uh, when you start seeing these opportunities that are less obvious. So they're not, they're not, we don't see storage on a daily basis. We don't see industrial storage, which is why a lot of people don't think about it. You know, it's very easy for us to think about investing in real estate because we live in real estate. We, yeah. we, you know, we, we live in homes. We might have lived in a duplex, whatever. I, I, I attribute it. It's a lot. It's a lot like how I remember in university, everybody seemed to want to be a teacher. Cause that was like the one thing they knew, right? They see teachers all around them and uh, it's funny, but um, this is a great opportunity. Like from the sounds of it, do you still see the opportunity existing? Can people still buy stuff that makes sense? Opportunity always exists. It's just that much harder. Plus Mm -hmm. it's narrowed down, right? Because more and more people want to compete in this space and have become aware of this space Mm -hmm. and the bigger players, right? So a lot of, you know, when you see things like, I mean, I'm sure you follow stock market. You see all this money being pulled out, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of these bigger players and now and banks are looking to see where can they deploy a lot of their income. So like I know like Bank of America in the United States has actually been buying a ton of industrial space right now. And they're becoming like a commercial landlord to to some degree. Because right. they don't know, like like lending is risky. There's so much risk, right? This is deemed as like a safe safe yeah. asset space, right? And the other people who are doing a lot of this is sovereign wealth funds. They're looking at buying into like these, okay. either like ranches and things like that as well. Like in the US, like there's tons of opportunity there, right? As well. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to own a ranch. That'd be awesome. Um, what do you, what do you typically expect to see now? Like nowadays, would you expect to see being able to get like a nine, 10% cap rate on this industrial storage or is that absolutely. optimistic? That's okay. No, that's I doable. Think, I, I think that's absolutely doable. And especially if you're willing to look South of the border, hundred mm-hmm. percent, like there's tons of opportunities out yeah. there. 
and and you would consider that relatively safe like in you to, for your experience and and your uh appetite that was that a considered a really relatively safe investment yeah like so for like so for example like i saw one that was outside of nashville right recently right that was delivering a cap rate of actually about just under 17 uh, percent like all those in. numbers and and basically the deal came with that if you did it fedex was going to lease it from you they wanted a 20-year lease Wow, that's good. So, so you were getting a lease from a company like FedEx for twenty years on this property. Did you do it? Uh, it was actually brought to me by a client. The client yeah. is actually in the process of closing. Okay, I was about to say if you didn't buy that, <laughs> but yeah. I guess yeah, it was, it was incredible. Uh, yeah. It was, inc- I mean, it was it wasn't cheap, but it, overall, it's still like you know, mm-hmm. you needed sufficient pockets, and there were certain unique yeah. characteristics that only certain people could have accomplished that deal, yeah. but. Now, when you're in that position, like, I mean, he's laughing, right? Like, he's he's got a secure tenant, doesn't need to worry about it at all. 17% uh, is, is a pretty good cap rate. Don't see that one too often. And he's, got, and he's got annual accelerators, too. Oh, to increase the, the rent on it. Oh, yeah. So it's going to get better and better as time yeah, goes on. Exactly. That's That's amazing. And I think a lot of money is to be made in commercial industrial real estate. And I think just a lot of people aren't quite ready. They think it's risky, right? But that's because they don't know it. So what would you recommend to someone who wanted to feel comfortable getting into this business? Where do they start? Talk to people who have done it. Ask them. How do you find them? Right? Like I could find you because you're talking about it, but I mean, otherwise just, just as you go through it, right. Just as you go through it, like you you have to meet people, right. Like the thing is there's a lot of risk if you don't know what you're doing, because there are a lot of industrial buildings out there that are worthless, quite frankly, right. Like either they're so contaminated or they're dilapidated or just not in a good location, right. Like, you know, where they won't have easy access. Like I had one who bought one outside of Ottawa, but the kind of trucks that he needed to get there couldn't really get get to what he needed for the kind of purpose that he needed and ended up being a worthless property to him. Mm-hmm. So it's all about, you know, don't just dive in. Yeah. Again, it's all about educate yourself. You don't have to take forever yeah. to educate yourself, but just learn, Yeah. talk to people, and especially some of these commercial re- leasing agents, they have a lot of in- insight yeah. and info. Especially like, like I know, like I've got, I know a couple of guys at CBRE. I know a couple of guys at Colliers who are very well a- acquainted with this space and they have great opportunities. Like honestly, mm-hmm. a lot of why I got started is like, and some of my clients got started is they had buddies who basically said, listen, this is going to make you money. Just don't believe me. Here's the math, right? right? Just look at the math here. And sometimes, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a big fact guy. So if you show me the facts and the facts line up, I'm like, okay, let's go. Yeah. And that's, that's what you gotta be, right. You gotta be objective about the information coming in. And, uh, I, I'm big on what you've said there. I don't like inventing the wheel. I, I want to find the people who know and learn from them. So, I mean, I guess people can take you golfing Hussein and they'll probably learn something about this and uh, <laughs> that might not be a bad way, but, uh, speaking of which we, hopefully we can golf next week. I hear things might be opening up. That's the rumor. And that will be the best long weekend gift that could be given. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, yeah, it's winter was long coming out of this COVID pandemic. I mean, it'd just be nice to actually meet with people, socialize with people. Because mm-hmm. they, they're, they're fr- good friends I've not seen in forever. And it's just yeah. surreal. Oh, no, it's it's so hard to figure it out. And where I just came from, like, I mean, in Florida, like the networking, like just a room full of people, no masks, shaking hands, talking like normal, like like 2019. That That's like what Florida is right now. It's crazy where we are right now, but I'm hoping maybe we can learn a little bit from that and open back up and get people talking again. Where did you invest in Florida? Um, well, I just shook hands on five lots in Cape Coral. Okay, yeah. And yeah, I'm, um, I'm going to partner with a guy on one of them and fund his build. So we'll do it together. And in return, he's going to connect me with all his contacts. And of course, I learn as we go. Um, I'm guy, gonna be, you're partnering with an American? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's from the area. He's in the RIA. So he's got something to lose if there was anything that wasn't, uh, wasn't done uh, correctly, um, which yeah. is what I was looking for. You know, I wanted, I wanted to find somebody to partner with down there because I don't want to invent the wheel. I want to learn from somebody who knows what they're doing because I know building here, but that's an entirely different market. And, uh, you know, I got to accelerate my learning. So this is how I decided to do it. You're building. Yeah. I bought uh, five, they're like 80 foot by like 120, 130, um, all around 25,000 a piece, 
which I got a really good deal because things are just accelerating in Cape Coral. Lot values are going up by like five grand a week. It's yeah. it's getting crazy. Um, I heard you own some land down there. Is that right? I, I, have, I have some property interest in the U.S. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you, nothing you're going to put out there uh, too much. Yeah, that, that, that can be discussed offline. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Um, yeah. I, I have some other things that I'm going to ask you about, cause I know you've got, uh, got some experience down there. Um, but yeah, there's again, network's so important. So for people taking stuff away from this episode, um, yeah, and, I'd, and I'd love to know how you're networking. structuring this, the, the, this build. And yeah. you're not an American citizen, right? No, but uh, are you? Uh, I have certain rights in the U.S. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. We'll leave it at that. I'm working on the investor visa, actually. I'm okay. working on uh, the E2 investor mm-hmm. visa. And uh, as far as structure goes, I, I've been uh, working on setting it up. And I'm b- back and forth between the accountant and the lawyer getting their blessing on what I can do that will keep me safe in Canada from a tax perspective if I stay here as a tax resident and also work very well and efficiently down there in Florida as a tax resident. So uh, there's a lot to think about, a lot of people to involve. Uh, you know, got to have that power team, right? Oh, it's a very exciting opportunity. And living in Florida, I mean, that's the dream, right? Oh, Hopefully. man, it was so good that those three months when, and I felt bad for everyone in Ontario, but just like being able to golf and, and enjoy warm weather. Like I love in an pandemic world, like living in Florida. Yeah. Is just, yeah. I, I love Ontario I, in the spring. I, I always joke, right. That my, that my ambition is, is that when I'm satisfied that, you know, I've accomplished something as a lawyer and made a difference in people's lives. I want to go and be a fishing boat captain in Florida. Yeah. Just, take, just take like tourists out deep sea fishing. That'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't imagine a better life than that. Especially I really, in the winter months. I, yeah, exactly. Like I really love Ontario right now. Like coming home in these sunny spring days. Like I love that weather. I, I think Ontario is really beautiful. Um, but being able to, you know, within 15 minutes, get out on a boat and see dolphins and, you know, yeah. be on the in, inland canals and inland waterways. Like it, it's it's a different way of living. And I certainly like it. Um, I like variety though. I mean, like you talk about adventure, uh, I don't think I'd want to be there all year round, but, um, you know, certainly a great, great springboard to start with and, you know, go from there. That's, that's kind of how I'm looking at it. Absolutely. Anywho, Hussein, this has been awesome. Um, where do people reach you if they want to follow your journey or connect with you? So they can, they can email me at hkudrati at hsklawfirm.ca. Okay. Or they can, yeah, I have a website at www.hsklawfirm.ca as well. Okay. And, you know, just call me, email me. I'm, I'm very accessible, as you know. Yeah. Like, I, 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 and anytime anyone wants to golf, that's, you'll definitely have my attention then. Yeah. Yeah. I got to start putting that offer out there. If things are open, yeah. Take me out golfing. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk. Um, yeah. I'll put your info in the, in the show notes so that people can, uh, can access it there. And sure. um, any parting words of wisdom for our viewers and listeners? Be smart, do your due diligence, but don't be scared of taking risks mm-hmm. because without risk, there is very rarely reward. Absolutely. And, and build your team up, trust your team. There's, it's no good having your lawyer and your accountant and your banker if you're not willing to listen to the advice they have to offer. Mm-hmm. And, if, and conversely, if they're not willing to offer you advice, then you need to replace yeah, that. Replace them. Yep. Got to listen to them. And then it's all about synthesis, Put, yeah. putting those interests together, making sure that you're talking to all of them and you're synthesizing what's the best thing to do based on their advice. So. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I really appreciate this, Hussein. It's always great catching up with you and hopefully we're golfing uh, next week. That would be awesome. Uh, I'll text you about that one. But uh, awesome. Awesome, man. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Please make sure to share this episode far and wide. Help it help more people. I really appreciate you tuning in. Thanks. I'll see you on the next one. (laughs) 